0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, by Assad Hader. Whether class or race is the more important factor in modern politics is a question right at the heart of recent history's most contentious debates. Among groups who should readily find common ground, there is little agreement. To escape this deadlock, Assad-hater turns to the rich legacies of the black freedom struggle. Drawing on the words and deeds of black revolutionary theorists, he argues that identity politics, as we have come to know it, is not synonymous with anti-racism, but instead amounts to the neutralization of its movements. It marks a retreat from the crucial passage of identity to solidarity and from individual recognition to the collective struggle against an oppressive social structure. Weaving together autobiographical reflection, historical analysis, and theoretical exegesis, mistaken identity is a passionate call for a new practice of politics beyond colorblind chauvinism and the ideology of race. And to make this add into a bit of an advertorial, I'd like to point out that I just finished the book. It's really stellar, and I'll be interviewing Assad shortly. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Calls for a return to bipartisan comedy... Obscure the actual history of legislation that has received overwhelming support from both Democrats and Republicans. Far too frequently, that legislation has been utterly monstrous. Recall that Representative Barbara Lee cast the only no vote on the authorization for use of military force, which greenlighted permanent war all over the world. Russ Feingold was the sole Senate opponent of the Patriot Act. And much of the carceral and deportation machinery currently under Donald Trump's command was built by leaders of both major parties. In other words, bad things often happen because bipartisan comedy revels in a conventional wisdom that is profoundly wrong. That's just what happened when Trump signed into law SESTA-FOSTA, so named for the House's Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Senate's. Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. As you might have guessed by this point, SESTA-FOSTA purportedly aims to curb sex trafficking. But in reality, as my guest Melissa Gier Grant explains, what it actually does is deny sex workers access to online platforms where they can more safely conduct their business. It received just two no votes in the Senate from Rand Paul and Ron Wyden. Even Bernie Sanders voted yes. It was a bad vote, and one that we should push Sanders, by far the left's best shot at the presidency, to come around on. But I think this all also has to do with the fact that these issues, generally speaking, still make for hard politics. Decriminalizing sex work and drug legalization, for example, are two issues that I care passionately about. And yet they are two issues that still, aside from marijuana, have not become core features of this newly insurgent left. At first blush, that's somewhat surprising, given that Black Lives Matter has made the fight against mass incarceration so central. But it's really not so surprising when one reflects upon how deeply prohibitionist politics are embedded in both popular and institutional morality. In other words, it's a problem of hegemony, Prohibition has long been plain common sense, so it's our job to change that, and the first step in doing so is to make it clear that there is dissent, and that prohibition is neither self-evident good policy nor politics. Okay, before we get rolling, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast, meaning that it is precisely people like you making modest contributions that make this being my job possible. So, if you're not hooking us up yet, please do so at patreon.com slash thedig. We've got a weekly newsletter for contributions of $5 a month. $10 gets you either Jacobin's The ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. For $20 or more a month, we have lots of great lefty books to send you. Last but not least, we have a live dig on the left response to the climate crisis, coming up in Brooklyn on August 17th at 7 p.m. at Verso Books. I've put event details in the show notes. Please, come on out, say hi. It'll be just like a regular DIG listening session, minus earbuds, plus other people. Okay, here's Melissa Jira grant a senior staff reporter at The Appeal, and the author of Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, from Verso Books, which is a truly stellar book that we're going to talk about a bunch. Melissa Jira Grant, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I want to start by talking about SESTA-FOSTA and then zoom out a little and talk about your 2014 book, Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, which is a really critically important book that this interview finally gave me the opportunity to read. So to start out, what does SESTA Foster purport to do? Why was it passed? And perhaps most importantly, what does it actually do?
1: With the benefit of like almost six months hindsight now since I started covering this legislation, it's remarkable that we are even talking about it at all. Uh, SESTA and FOSTA are incredibly purposefully convoluted bills. Um, The reason that we're saying SESTA-FOSTA, by the way, is because there's these two different bills that were combined, one from the Senate, one from the House, into this sort of Frankenstein bill. I think it's what the Electronic Frontier Foundation called it. And in a way, this is um, the first gambit by the Trump administration to try to, you know, pass tough anti-trafficking legislation, I guess is how they would talk about it. Um, but in reality, what these laws are is they amend two very old pieces of, of U.S. legislation. One is the Communications Act, and the other is the Man Act, like the White Slavery Act, like the reason that Trump was considering pardoning Uh, Jack Johnson, former boxer, right? Uh, This is very old legislation concerning both um, prostitution and how the federal government regulates it, which as far as the federal government is concerned, prostitution only matters when it's an issue of interstate commerce, and then communications, same logic. So that's a very long an overly historic preamble to get us to the point of this legislation, which is for the last 10, 15 years, groups that are opposed to sex work and sex workers' rights have seized upon the issue of human trafficking as a way to shape legislation towards their ends, which isn't even about passing legislation. It's about creating this environment where the general public stops seeing any distinction between sex work, which is engaged in as a form of labor, in a form of income generation and human trafficking, which is regarded not just in the US, but around the world as a grave issue of transnational crime and as a human rights violation. So, really, if you think about it, the purpose of this legislation wasn't to craft like a great law. It wasn't necessarily even to pass a law that would be used. Like, here we are a few months out, and we haven't even seen this legislation used. Um, What we were told by its supporters and by those in Congress who backed it, like Rob Portman and Richard Blumenthal in the Senate and Anne Wagner and Carolyn Maloney in the House, uh, is that this legislation would enable people to go after websites that engaged in the facilitation of trafficking. Already we're getting into sort of mucky territory, right? We're talking about facilitation as a legal concept, which you know is very broad and essentially just needs to help or to assist someone. So prior to this moment, um, you know websites are given a lot of safe harbor under the law when it comes to what their users post. and
0: or else the internet wouldn't work.
1: or else the internet wouldn't work exactly. To use this show as an example, if someone goes on Apple Podcasts and leaves a review in which they talk about engaging in criminal behavior, you yourself, Dan, or The Dig, or anybody that supports this show should not be held liable for that criminal behavior, right? Your comment section, in other words, shouldn't be construed as a space in which people uh, break the law with you. That by having a space where people can post things on the internet does not involve you in a relationship of of law breaking. Um, This is protected speech. Um, Now, if that person goes and actually breaks the law, that's one thing. Um, But the the critical point here is the law insulates you, the person who provides that platform from liability for their actions. And that is a part of the law that, as you said, it's it's allowed the Internet to be what the Internet is. And that is a part of the law that SESTA and FOSTA convolute to the point that websites like Reddit, for example, the days after this law passed, uh, told people who ran forums on on Reddit, subreddits where people talk about sex work, just discuss sex work, um, that they need to better police those forums to ensure that there was no conversation going on there that could in any way be construed as facilitating prostitution.
0: But this was ostensibly targeted at things like Backpage, which in fact was taken down before SESTA-FOSTA passed, just days before. When, or days before it went into effect. Yeah.
1: Right. And, and that I think is really to kind of go back to like, well, why are, why is this law even exist? Like why are these groups who are opposed to prostitution trying to pass a trafficking law that by the way, doesn't even talk about trafficking? It's about prostitution. Um, it's to create this sort of chilling effect on the parts of people who run these platforms like Backpage. Um, though in a sense, Backpage was the boogeyman that they propped up as like, you know, this is why we need this legislation. And Backpage itself was able to be knocked offline, its domains and its currency seized by the federal government and in the process of being seized, um, because it had violated existing laws. So it's a mess. And I feel like this is pretty common when it comes to criminal justice issues is these laws become so thorny and convoluted. And they're told, you're told they're going to do one thing, but they actually do something else that people just sort of check out of the conversation altogether. Like listeners who are still listening right now, like, thank you for staying with this conversation. Uh, The reality of this legislation, what it looks like in the real world right now, um, even though there hasn't been a single prosecution under it, is that the internet has become a lot more dangerous for sex workers and it's because platforms are much more fearful than they've ever been before that they are gonna be held liable in some way for the actions of sex workers because that's what's actually going on on a website like Backpage. It's predominantly sex workers posting ads For themselves, or for one or two people that they maybe are sharing a credit card with or a telephone with. Backpage to this point in time has not actually itself been an actor in human trafficking. There are people who are trafficked who were advertised on Backpage, but to say that Backpage is responsible for that behavior. And where do you draw the line? Like, are the hotels where those individuals were trafficked? Are they also liable? You know, to take it out of the context of trafficking and sex work and think of it as like human trafficking more broadly, like, you know, we could have a conversation, I guess, about holding a fast food chain that buys tomatoes that were farmed by workers who were held in trafficking. But is that the way to actually create change for those workers?
0: One big thing going on here seems to be this implicit notion that no decent, respectable human being could ever sell sex in a truly consensual manner.
1: I think that's at the root of it because you don't see this legislation targeting any other industry. SESTA and FOSTA are explicitly about prostitution. And that is because the groups who wanted this to pass are groups who do not believe that sex work should exist or who. Whether or not they believe that, uh, believe that what we should do is is create more social stigma around selling sex and buying sex. Um, the creation of that stigma itself is dangerous. I think that's the other thing for people to keep in mind is that, you know, this legislative campaign, yes, it was successful in some ways. They got the law passed, but what was really unique about it is it it was an opening for sex workers to stand up and say, like, you are trying to make us seem like we have no power, we have no agency, we have no voice. You're ignoring us in the legislative process. Well, you are not going to ignore us in the broader conversation about this legislation. And it's very rare that legislation passes through Congress almost unanimously. There are only two votes against it in the Senate. Um, There are like 25-ish votes against it in the House. Uh, The House largely the, the no votes in the House came at the 11th hour and were largely through the efforts of Representative Barbara Lee. In uh, the Senate, Ron Wyden, who wrote some of the original provisions of the Communications Decency Act that were being uh, gutted by this bill, stood against it. But very few other senators stood with him. It was just Rand Paul, who didn't even really give like a speech about it. Um, Bernie Sanders went for it. Kamala Harris went for it. All your you know resistance faves, they went for it. So... They won the day when it came to the law itself, but I think they lost the the war when it came to the way that people understand this legislation is controversial and is dangerous.
0: Let's hope that once uh, more organized sex workers and people from EFF and other groups talk to Bernie Sanders that he flips on that, because my, my guess, and maybe, more, maybe it's more of a hope than a guess, is that uh, this is not the sort of bill that many... Even more progressive legislatures have a very clear idea about. Though I guess Ron Wyden has been talking about it quite a bit, so there's not really a good excuse.
1: <laughs> no, and and you know some of the the people who were you know kind of running from the left in the New York congressional races came out against this. Um, both Suraj Patel and Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio Cortez came out against it. Um, Suraj Patel held a, a town hall meeting. Uh, on sex work as an issue where the speakers were sex workers and sex worker rights advocates and he just sat there and listened. Um, so something is is shifting. There was also a lobby day on June 1st where sex workers and sex worker rights advocates went to DC and visited offices of congressional aides and left, um, you know, no mistake that the sex workers were somebody that could be ignored um, in this legislation, or legislation like it. Um, returns. I think the thing that, that's startling about this entire process is that, um, you know, it's impossible to say that, that sex workers are incapable of speaking for themselves. Like, I think we have maybe finally broken from that um, narrative. And the narrative that, that's sort of being tussled with now is, well, that's fine that all of you do this thing and make money at it and like but you're just the tiny minority and basically everybody else is forced and yes like they're not the people that we're hearing from but they're voiceless and so we're going to speak on their behalf uh there's well something
0: we should emphasize right right here is that precisely the sort of practices that supporters of sesta claim the legislation will will help eliminate i.e forced coerced sex trafficking will It's the very criminalization of sex work that this legislation doubles down on that allows those very same abusive practices to or helps allow those very same abusive practices to occur.
1: That's why I started covering this legislation as I was hearing from anti-trafficking groups, um, attorneys who provide legal services to survivors of trafficking, social services agencies that provide other kinds of support, whether that's short-term housing or counseling, access to health care they were saying that this legislation would be really dangerous. And the, the the folks who supported it, who wanted to say they spoke for all people who have been trafficked or all people who were forced into sex work, they couldn't claim that credibly. There were trafficking survivors who were coming out against this as well. Um, and so that, that was a really interesting complexity that I wanted to make sure got covered. Um, but even when I started writing about this legislation back in January, it didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. I mean, not much has gone anywhere in our Congress, um, and this just felt like it was such a mess. And the tech companies originally opposed it themselves, um, though they swapped loyalties. And we get Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook actually coming out in favor against uh, in favor of SESTA and Fosta. So it's you know it's something that I think when you look at sort of who supported it and who opposed it, the kinds of groups that supported it were groups that are largely lobby groups that their energies are focused on Congress and passing anti-sex work laws and creating some more social stigma about sex work through the public debate about these laws. And the groups that were opposed to it were largely grassroots groups of sex workers, groups like EFF, but also groups like the ACLU. And in the later kind of stages in the last months or so, more LGBT rights organizations and women's rights organizations came on board to oppose SESTA and FOSTA, HIV organizations. In short, people who have more day-to-day contact with people who are most likely to face the harm of this legislation, either because they are engaged in sex work or because they have been trafficked and they're trying to get services, they're trying to get help. And Many people have pointed out that that what this legislation has done is essentially just shifted around sort of the place where sex is exchanged and also where trafficking victims might be lost. Um, You know, these websites were very powerful tools for law enforcement. Uh, Police use these websites to to try to find people um, that they believe are trafficked. Um you know, that's not necessarily a great intervention either to have police go arresting people, um, who could potentially be victims of human trafficking. Um, neither is it beneficial for police to be arresting sex workers. Um, but when you have police coming out and saying like, this law is actually going to make our jobs harder. Um, it's, it, it sort of boggles the mind, like what this legislation was supposed to do other than just, you know, create an opportunity to have another shame, shaming, uh, public shaming uh, around sex work. And they failed at that.
0: Platforms where sex workers can advertise is is really a piece of this larger politics of arresting and demonizing and prosecuting, or at least claiming to arrest, demonize and prosecute clients or johns, because both to me seem to purport to not harm or target the sex worker who these days is, at least on the surface level, portrayed as a victim, what is the ideological and political function of this performative criminalization of platforms like Backpage and also uh, of John's, the, the what's it called, the Nordic model? Um, right. And, and what does the belief that eliminating ads for sex work will eliminate sex work, what does that reveal about anti-sex work politics?
1: What I've noticed is this attempt on the part of these these same groups, groups like the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, Demand, Abolition, Equality Now, groups who've really been pressing for, um, the quote unquote Nordic model, which they believe is a different legislative, uh, approach to, to regulating sex work. Um, I say they believe that it's different legislative approach because what they describe as the Nordic model, um, isn't really coherent. Uh, the, the way that laws about sex work that they say would fall under the Nordic model operate operate differently in different countries. So they're comparing kind of apples and oranges when they're looking at you know what's going on in Sweden versus what's going on in in Ireland and the Republic of Ireland versus what's going on in Canada. Are all places where they say the Nordic model is operational and all places where sex workers report that their jobs have actually become more dangerous uh, since this this shift supposed shift uh, towards going after clients. Um, The shift towards going after clients or customers of sex workers, as far as the Nordic model supporters go, say this is a way to sort of like relieve uh, women who sell sex from being perceived as criminals. But the the alternate position that they're giving them, this is the political and rhetorical work that the Nordic model is doing is now you get to be a victim, I guess, rather than being a criminal. Um, you know, there is no other... <laughs> right. You know, like maybe in the kind of, you know, uh, progressive era, you would have been regarded as, as sick. And, you know, the, the shift of, you know, that era of, of reform was to sort of shift... Uh, women who sold sex from being regarded as sick to being regarded as victims, um, but at the end of the day, people were still regarded as criminals, and that's the case even now. Um, you know, one of the the structures in this whole apparatus of you know pushing for the Nordic model that I've been covering a lot in the U.S or these supposed um, anti-trafficking courts or trafficking intervention courts, where largely women who are arrested um, on charges related to prostitution are brought into these courts. And rhetorically, we're told these courts are treating people like victims. But what they're doing in actuality is just processing people's prostitution-related charges in a courtroom in the same place as any other court might be operating. Um, and what they're doing is telling people that if they go to the social service, um, then, you know, the, the charges against them will, will be sealed. Um, it's interesting, you know, like they're, if they're supposedly victims, why are they being arrested in the first place? Like what other victim of a crime is it acceptable to arrest? And, you know, we know um, because of the kinds of.
0: As used the threat of imprisonment as to coerce them into seeking Treatment that they might not want or need
1: Right and and treatment that in many cases isn't relevant to what's actually going on, you know in a way I guess the model here is like drug court or mental health court Um, But you know in this case like what's going on when someone is selling sex is nothing to do with um, You know necessarily needing a counseling session that's not going to relieve their immediate needs which are the bill that needs to be paid right so it's it's a way to sort of re-medicalize prostitution, re-medicalize sex workers to to sort of push women back into this role um, where it's acceptable for outside intervention to rule their lives, whether that's coming from the hands of the police or whether that's coming from the hands of a social worker. Um, at the end of the day, it's still regarding sex workers as people who you know don't have the ability to make their own choices and decisions without someone else shaping them and guiding them. I mean, it's, it's something that is not actually very new, but the quote unquote Nordic model puts a new gloss on it. Um, so if they're gonna regard kind of everybody who sells sex as a victim, and, and they regard sex work itself as a kind of criminal act that's done to a victim, then that's the extension, um, you know, back towards the the client or the customer being regarded as more or less tantamount to a trafficker. Like this collapsing of um, somebody who actually Has some kind of business interest or enterprise in forcing people into selling sex or trading sex, Um, they want to to sort of erase the differences between that individual and a customer of any sex worker, whether or not they're trafficked. And a lot of these groups um, are really funding these like public. Uh, engagement campaigns like bus ads and um, internet PSAs and even memes at this point, right? They're cre- they're literally creating cat memes in an attempt to, to educate men who do or may buy sex. And the messages that they're giving these men is, well, you don't know that person could be trafficked, um, which is just kind of staggering to, to think about it. Like, I'm trying to imagine like a parallel, like, well, what if we had like a public awareness campaign about ending domestic violence that said like, well, you don't know if that woman isn't being abused in her relationship. Like maybe you shouldn't get into a relationship with any woman. Like it, it it's a degree of robbing somebody of agency that is only acceptable for this group of women.
0: So there's the demonization of, of, of the johns which gives cover for just former you know further criminalization of sex workers even though they're now portrayed as victims and then with the attack on the platforms the platforms are sort of made into made out to be the pimps
1: right you know the idea that a website is a site of crime right like it doesn't really work you can't really map physical um, actions onto the web in this way. Um, so, you know, you see these, uh, the, these groups describe a website like Backpage or others as a brothel. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like you actually can't just commit prostitution on the internet. Like it requires another act in physical space. You know, even if the act is just having a discussion or uh, exchanging money uh, or, you know, expressing some sort of like willingness to engage in sex um, after having made an agreement for a fee. It's, rhetorical shift that has much more to do with sort of redefining everybody around a commercial sex transaction as a potential pimp or trafficker and that's quite dangerous for sex workers because what it in effect says is that you're a victim and we need to isolate you from you know anybody else in your life whether that's like the person who you rent a space from well who knows like they're profiting off of you maybe they're your pimp maybe they're your trafficker and you see this in the sort of interrogations that that women go through when they're arrested on prostitution related charges you know i hear over again that police are just really pushing people to like give up some pimp or give up some traffic or go through their phone go through their laptop go through their tablet whatever they've got on them um to try to figure out like well who's this other person that might be controlling you um even though that's more often than not just not the case but if you go in looking for a victim then i guess everyone looks like a victim even though you're still arresting them it's it's, it's a mess.
0: There is a lawsuit filed recently that you wrote about at the appeal um, challenging SESTA-FOSTA on First and Fifth Amendment grounds, I believe. Can you can you explain what the lawsuit's argument is and who the plaintiffs are?
1: The Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, as well as several other attorneys, um, are collaborating on this lawsuit. It's a constitutional challenge to, to FOSTA, and it argues that you know, essentially, this overbroad language of facilitating prostitution makes it impossible um, for people to comply, and that otherwise lawful speech um, is criminalized under the statute. So, their plaintiffs- Even the
0: Internet Archive is a plaintiff.
1: It's in the Internet Archive, in a way, it's, it's a genius plaintiff. You know, for people who are yeah. familiar, the Internet Archive, you know, essentially exists as a way to scrape what is online and create. A ongoing archive of it. So if you've ever used the service, the Wayback Machine, you're dipping into the Internet Archive. Um, in addition to that, the Internet Archive also contains like, you know, all kinds of material that is no longer on the internet. Um, so it's not just like a picture of what is, but it's a historic picture going back like at least to the 90s. And it's something that under Fosta, because Fosta actually is retroactive. Which is wild to think about that, you know, not only are you responsible for what your users do from the point of it was signed forward, but also for everything that you possibly have on a server in the past. The implications of that for the Internet Archive. Um,
0: yeah, are just- communication that's formally legal at one moment that's then criminalized is then illegal retroactively.
1: Right. and it should be it's important to point out here that you know, there it, it is actually and already possible to prosecute a website for actually facilitating prostitution um, and that's what happened in the case of rent boy for example the uh at, at the point it was shut down it had been online for nearly 20 years and its ceo ended up doing federal prison time and the way that they made that case is they said that he it was a federal case the way that they made that case is they said that he violated the travel act which essentially federalizes any um, state law um, so it's it is entirely possible to actually go after websites that are far less engaging in facilitating trafficking or engaged in facilitating prostitution by allowing these ads to exist, just um, like
0: esc- escort websites.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's really just about sort of um, opportunity, right? Like prosecutors here are wielding a lot of power. Um, you know, why did Rentboy get prosecuted after he'd been online for twenty years? you know it's not like it was hiding anywhere they like had a float in pride parades in new york for years they threw big public parties they had educational events it, it and all of which by the way were visited Um, by federal agents in the course of producing the criminal complaint against them. It's a wild.
0: They helped an important Christian pastor lift his luggage.
1: Yes. (laughs) They did all kinds of important documentation of sex slings and anything else that one might want to read about. In a way, it was so over the top. I think it made the the prosecution very unpopular and it quickly fell apart. You know, they dropped charges against six of the site's employees and just went after the CEO and he ended up just doing six months. Actually, interesting factoid, some of the people who supported SES Fosta, like Jerry Nadler and Sean Patrick Maloney, um, they actually signed uh, onto a letter in support of a reduced sentence for the owner of Rentboy, Jeffrey Harant.
0: I guess that's just like that's just like Manhattan politics or maybe, something.
1: Maybe, or maybe that it's they that don't employ- was a site for guys marketing themselves sold for guys. And that there's a way that when it's men, you know, they that agency, that lack of agency argument, it doesn't play out in quite the same way. So, yeah, like going after um, the Internet Archive, the other plaintiffs on the the lawsuit against FOSTA, uh, it's Woodhull v. Sessions, if anyone wants to look it up, um, include the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, who um, are a nonprofit engaged in advocacy around sexual freedom, reproductive rights. And sexual health, and they have an uh, annual summit at which there are panels on sex work, and they were concerned that even marketing these online could open them up to prosecution under FOSTA. Um, FOSTA, by the way, also it, it's not just a uh, you know U.S. attorneys who are coming for you, but it actually empowers. State attorneys general to bring these prosecutions, and any private attorney to bring these prosecutions. Uh,
0: there's so many great state AGs out there who I'm yeah. sure will just do wonderful things with this law.
1: And you know, it's it's not just a matter of you know prior challenges to the Communications Decency Act, which much of the sort of. 90s era anti-porn parts of that law have, have fallen through constitutional challenges of their own so in a way like there's like a good chance that fosta might end up in that same bucket it's just like this was overbroad this was targeting otherwise lawful speech like it's it's not a valid law um so that could happen um but one of the things that happened in these prior challenges to laws that are sort of like sesta fosta that targeted the internet um is that they were still laws that were at the end of the day, up to the Department of Justice and how they were going to actually enforce them. But because FOSTA has like redistributed that power to all of these other, you know, not just the state attorneys general, but also private attorneys who want to bring, um, cases. It's not just like, and he's not going to do this. It's, it's not just like Jeff Sessions could say like, you know what, we're not going to enforce this. Um, Janet Reno, when one of these challenges landed at her feet, Um, One of the things that the Communications Decency Act originally outlawed was communication for facilitating abortion. If you want to think of like a really intense parallel to what's going on right now with SESTA and FOSTA, particularly in the moment that we're in right now, um, where Roe v. Wade is hanging by by a fragile, fragile thread. Um, If you're going to criminalize communication for the purpose of facilitating abortion, how many people does that impact? Can you sell our bodies ourselves on Amazon.com? Would Amazon be liable for that? Uh, Can you give to an abortion fund? What behavior could be criminalized under facilitating abortion? It's so broad. And if you think of that around sex work, that's exactly what sex workers are going through right now. Like all of the pain that people are feeling about this return to a pre-Roe versus Wade world, like that is the world that sex workers are living in right now.
0: Your comment about Rent Boy made me think about something you write about in the book, which is the dominant public image of a sex worker being a prostitute working on the street, leaning into the window of a passing car. It's um, this, this picture that fully exposes the woman, but also just locks her into this moment of time while she's working. And that's a lot of an analysis you return to repeatedly in the book. But we don't have an image. This image excludes a lot of the variety and heterogeneity of sex work, including the fact that there are many male sex workers. What what do you think the result is or what political work is being done by such a exclusive and homogenous image of sex work being its icon in the public?
1: It's something that, you know, I feel like spans the political spectrum, you know, whether you're talking kind of from the left to the right, conservative to progressive. Um, the work that this image does to prop up a whole range of politics. Uh, this idea that a sex worker is a woman who is displaying herself in public in a way that she ought not to. Some of these early pro- anti prostitution laws, by the way, like prohibit things like licentious display, <laughs> which is such a wonderful phrase, but a very vague set of behaviors, right? Um, there's anti prostitution laws in Massachusetts still on the books that prohibit what they call night walking. So if you start looking at people who've been charged with prostitution in Massachusetts, you'll find people charged with things like night walking in the third degree. Um, this is essentially criminalizing women for existing in public. That's what these laws originally did. They're sort of, you know, disorder-based laws, laws that are saying your body is out of order if it's being seen in this way. And, you know, like any law like that, they're disproportionately going to target target people who are already considered disorderly under the law. So you're talking about majority of these prosecutions in New York and in many other places are going to target Black women. They're going to target Latinx folks. They're going to target cis and trans folks of color. Um, They're disproportionately targeting trans women of color. And men are very rarely arrested. Um, If you sit in the human trafficking intervention court in New York on any given day, most of the people that you see before you are going to be cis and trans women. And if there are people in the room um whose names are called out and they are they are male sounding names most often what you're seeing is an officer who misgendered that person when they wrote that arrest up so in terms of who is criminalized um it's the same as that public figure it's that woman in public who's being disorderly who's where she ought not to be and This image of a a woman leaning into a car out alone on a street at night, right, this isn't somebody who has a community around her. This isn't somebody who anybody is going to care about, right? That's what this image tells us. This is a person all alone. Um, And that is you know, a way of depoliticizing a sex worker, you know, I know, you know, not every sex worker is a political activist, and nor should they have to be. Um, But what you saw after SESTA and FOSTA, the kinds of images that are circulating now of sex work are such 180 degrees from that image. It's people organized in protests of hundreds of people. It's a diversity of sex workers, you know, across the spectrum of gender. And across racial lines, the rally here in New York, which was in Washington Square Park, it was the largest gathering of of, under the umbrella of sex workers rights that I have ever seen in the United States in like the last 10 or 15 years. Um, It was about 500 people. There were a majority of um, sex workers of color speaking Um, this did not look like that image. And I think it's incredibly powerful for people to, to challenge that kind of limited image. Um, it's not everything, right? Visibility isn't necessarily power. Um, but in this moment where, um, that idea, like a woman walking alone at night is, is still, you know, holding on in the imagination, um, to be able to see sex workers out and organizing and caring for their communities, I think is, is a really important rebuke to that.
0: One argument I took from your book is that this, this degradation of the iconic hyper-visible streetwalker, that this one interest this serves or, or something it does does politically, is also about fortifying an extremely oppressive form of legitimate womanhood. This is part of the politics of what you describe, and I think others and scholars and journalists describe as well, as whore stigma.
1: It's about policing sort of the borders of womanhood. Like, you know, womanhood was like a nation. Yeah. That's one way to think about it, right? Like there's only so many people who fit under under this umbrella. And horror stigma, it's actually kind of a riff on a, a concept coming out of, of lesbian feminist politics, which is interesting if you want to think about sort of spaces that also sometimes police and exclude sex workers. Um, but Adrian Rich talks about compulsory heterosexuality and all of the ways that our society is structured to coerce heterosexuality out of women. And riffing on that, um, Jill Nagel, who edited a really influential anthology called *Horse and Other Feminists, was published by Routledge in 1997. It's still one of the best anthologies out there about sex worker rights. Um, Jill sort of rips on that and, and extends it to this idea of compulsory virtue, um, that, you know, what women must not be is thought of as a whore. And and then the stigma that comes with that. Gail Peterson, I think, is the first scholar to talk about whore stigma. Um, and the ways that, it, that I talk about it is sort of thinking of this whore stigma as, you know, the other other. Um, like if woman is other, then these are all of the kind of others on top of that. You know, in a way, um, whore itself is an intersectional category, an intersectional oppression Um, that is really about being a woman in the wrong way. And the wrongness of that is so coded as, you know, too dark, too loud, too cheap, too slutty, all of those things that are just really about race and class judgment. Um, And I think that's also part of the reason that um, the women's movement has struggled with it, because those are also all places where the women's movement is still struggling in its own politics.
0: And it seems to by by doing this it seems to inflate the perceived value of a of particular types of mainstream forms of womanhood that can actually be pretty awful to live with if 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 that is what you feel like you you must live with
1: i mean if the options are um, being paid for sex or not feeding your children, those aren't really great options to have you know I think about um the kind of fault line from the domestic violence movement that Beth Ritchie writes about—that um, there, there was sort of a, a dividing moment in the domestic violence movement, and the anti-violence movement, where people who had a more structural analysis of of what made domestic violence an entrenched problem um, were sort of being pushed to develop a more simplistic analysis of domestic violence as more of an interpersonal problem between two individuals, um, rather than, you know, for example when you have women who have less power and less money to have less say about their lives, how all of that um, can make escaping a violent relationship that much more impossible. And so their solutions to domestic violence looked really different. You know, they didn't look like a shelter where you're going to have counseling. Maybe that was available to you in a short-term way, but really it was about getting you your own place to live, getting you your own money, finding ways that tapped into your own power and what you wanted in the world. And, and I feel like that, that, Breakdown of sort of strategy of like, well, where are you going to intervene? Are you going to intervene in this individual relationship? Are you going to intervene in, in a woman relationship between a woman and the world at large? Um, that's really instructive for sort of parsing out like where people's sex work politics lie. Um, you know, the violent institution that most people who are opposed to sex work are thinking about when they're thinking about sex work is they think of sex work as an institution itself. They're not thinking about the violence of policing. Um, They're not thinking about the violence of, you know, even living under a degree of of social monitoring and control, all of the ways that people who are accessing social benefits are surveilled and controlled. Um, They're not thinking about the ways that these systems interlock to make women's choices so small to to begin with. And that's one of the arguments that is picking up steam right now. in sort of the anti sex work world, this idea that like, well, if you're only choosing sex work out of already limited choices, then like, how is it really a choice? But that doesn't seem to be a criteria that's placed to other kinds of low status and low wage work that women might also choose to do um, against what against the odds of going hungry against the odds of going homeless, like including
0: certain types of marriage under patriarchy.
1: Right. I mean, if you want to take it all the way there, it's like, is there any um, ethical relationship structure under patriarchy? I yeah. Know.
0: I mean, lesbian separatists would say no, but I don't think um, <laughs> I don't think a lot of these anti-sex work people would embrace that position.
1: I mean, I'm sure, like, if if we were having this conversation in 1986, we would be able to name some people whose anti-sex work politics also extended to being anti-marriage. But that's not what I'm seeing in the world <laughs> of anti-sex work politics now. Like, I'm seeing you know, sort of an arguing for this return to very conventional ideas of womanhood, of like women have to be protected from the scary world out there. And, you know, that scary world now has also been rewritten to include the Internet, um, and it's, it's, it's really too bad because there is a lot of fucked up stuff on the internet for women. Like, let's be really honest. Um, and a lot of that, porn is but, shitty. <laughs> a lot of porn is shitty. If you're a woman online with an opinion, you're going to get shit for it. There's a lot of abuse going on on social media platforms that those platforms are entirely unwilling to do anything about, you know, one of the theories floating about Cesta and FOSTA is it was a way for those companies like Twitter, um, to throw a bone to Congress and say, you know what, we can police our, We're going to get all this stuff off of our platform. Um, So you have services like Cloudflare, which is a content distribution network, sort of like a mega server. Um, It took their CEO longer to decide to kick off the Daily Stormer, an actually overt white supremacist website. Then it took them to kick off Twitter, which was a sex worker iteration of Mastodon, which is kind of like an open source version of Twitter that's not reliant on you know, the decisions Twitter makes. It's a distributed platform, but it still needed Cloudflare to, to operate. And so Cloudflare pulled the plug on them. They had to go find another content provider or a service provider for their server space. So it's it is wild sort of like where these standards fall. Like there's so many things you can do in the name of like protecting women, um, that apparently a service like Twitter is unwilling to do when it comes to, yeah, like like, protecting women in the symbolic, right? Um, versus like actually protecting women from the harassment that they might face on these platforms. Like the reality is sex workers and social media are far more likely to face harassment from other people because of who they are. Um, They are they are not on platforms themselves being bad actors in the way that they're sort of you know, being painted with that brush when all of sex work gets painted with the brush of being like a bad thing we have to kick out of our online neighborhood.
0: Well, you don't have to confront the issue of believing women if you don't listen to them in the first place, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's it's easy to protect someone who conveniently can never speak for herself,
0: right? sesta is seems to be a response to or maybe just maybe actually part and parcel of what you describe in your book as a process of sexual gentrification, with the sex industry being pushed out of old school red light districts and onto the web and also merging with the larger service economy. And on the one hand, you write that there's this loss of the embeddedness of of red light districts within the more general fabric of a city core. But this more hidden internet economy, which is hidden from public space, is also more ubiquitous in a way than ever online. And it, it seems like your argument is that this might be one of the things at the root of the current panic. You write, Is the real fear then not that more people are becoming prostitutes, but that the conventional ways we distinguish a prostitute from a non-prostitute woman are no longer as functional? Anti-prostitution laws are primarily about exclusion and banishment. How now will we know who is to be banished and excluded?
1: It's something that has probably only accelerated in like the four years since I wrote that. Um, you know, one of the moments at the Washington Square Park rally against sesta Fosta that was was so poignant and funny and also very like real. Uh, one of the speakers pointed out across the crowd and said, "You know, we're right here at the doorstep of NYU, and I'm pointing at all of you. I'm pointing at all of you who go on the sugar daddy websites, all of you who are making." tuition, making book money with seeking arrangement, like if you think you're safe because what you're doing isn't like really prostitution, think again. And that 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 sort of like kind of um I don't like the term gray market, but this sort of in-between economy, these like spaces online that are like essentially there as transactional sexual spaces or spaces where people can connect for transactional sexual relationships. Like they can't hide anymore under legislation like SESTA and Fossa. And sure enough, in the days after it passed, the guy who runs Seeking Arrangement, um, who just seems like a real creeper, just to editorialize for a moment, like, it's just, <laughs> this whole affect is like, well of course you have a hard time sort of finding sexual connection from people who aren't otherwise compensated to be there. Um, he though, like has this like complex mythology about it as many men I think who engage in the sugar daddy world do, which is like, they don't want to think of themselves as the kind of guy who would pay for it. Like that's their fantasy. And so it was really easy for him to say, you we don't do that here like this isn't prostitution this is just like people who are getting together who just like helping a girl out sometimes you know it sounds almost like breakfast at tiffany's or something right but like we all know what was really going on with $50 for the powder room, right? Like that is far in excess of the quarter tip that you might need for the person <laughs> in there. And that's the same thing. And that, then, you know, there have always been ways that commercial sex have sort of existed at the mar- the outskirts of that stereotype or that like overt red light district, you know, when you think of women, um, who engage in freestyling in hotels, for example, which is a practice that wasn't all that common, though that is becoming more common now after SESTA-FOSTA, where women essentially go to hotel bars, where they think the kind of men who might pay for sex might be hanging out and, you know, essentially pick them up. That's something that, like, has really gone by the wayside with the internet. Why would you do that if you have seekingarrangement.com? Well, maybe now you don't want to do that because do you really want to put your picture on the internet where some facial recognition software could scoop it up? Do you really want to like leave a digital paper trail for somebody who wants to enforce this new law to track you down on? In a way like pushing people back into physical spaces um, is going to reopen up this whole question again of sort of like how do we police who we think is a sex worker and how do we police spaces where sex work might be happening? Um, I think people should really keep an eye on New Orleans and what's going on down there as also sort of a canary in the coal mine of all of this like Urban street's one of the few remaining places in this country where you could rightly describe as having a red light district but even that's sort of insufficient because what it really is is like a nightlife district that has a lot of room for strippers and in the last um few months many of those clubs were closed either in a series of raids or also now recently um one of the clubs that was raided has uh, closed itself um this is pretty unprecedented, the idea of uh, a kind of gentrification on Bourbon Street campaign that's going after, in this case, nearly half of the adult entertainment businesses that were in the six block uh, essential part of the quarter. Uh, It's very, very strange to see a city like New Orleans think it could pull off a kind of Disneyfication akin to Times Square, but it looks like that might be what's in the cards right now. Um, And so you add that on top of SESTA-FOSTA. I was talking to to escorts in New Orleans who are just like, I guess I'm going back out on the street. You know, like, where where am I supposed to go?
0: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for DIG listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives— work, knowledge, home, politics— have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers, and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The Amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. You have another powerful and prescient passage about this in your book. Quote, When Craigslist's erotic services section launched, it wasn't the first website where sex workers could place ads seeking customers, but it was the first to so closely resemble the geography of the red light districts that preceded it. Remember that Times Square didn't contain only sexually-oriented businesses. The neighborhood was home to a variety, to low-end electronics and jewelry shops, to single-room occupancy hotels, to street-level workers informally selling sex, to those selling kebabs and newspapers. As threatening as it might be that a site such as Craigslist provided a space for advertising sexual commerce, what's perhaps more threatening is that it did so alongside advertisements for any other kind of product or service imaginable. Rather than segregate sexual commerce, Craigslist made sex workers neighbors. That seems to be sort of the animating principle behind SESTA-FOSTA, too, on some level.
1: It is. it's, it's It's a form of banishment. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that Craigslist has after Sesta Fosta, um, it is essentially impossible to to do sex work even in a coded way on Craigslist. You know, in twenty ten they did formally remove the link to a section that was called erotic services from the homepage, but it didn't mean that people weren't using other sections of the site to arrange commercial sex, including the personal section. In fact, part of the reason an you know, emoji
0: an emoji Latin personal section.
1: Yes, yes. And the personal section in the days after SESTA-FASTA passed, they yanked that too. And you can go on Craigslist and read the message that they left for the site's users saying like, you know, there's no way to guarantee that people aren't going to use the space for prostitution. So like, we have to take it down too. And I'm sure there are people who are creatively using other um, services sections on Craigslist right now to try to, to fish for commercial sex. And they're probably using other sites too. They're probably using LinkedIn, right? Like, there's nothing on the internet that can't sort of be marshaled into sexual commerce.
0: I really so, hope LinkedIn is next.
1: <laughs> I, you know, but but that that I think is sort of this is the beauty and the and the the danger that the internet has posed to people who are used to sort of regulating the world uh, with insiders and outsiders and using the law to sort of coerce people into a level of social and political conformity. It's like that doesn't work online, um, and the anti-sex work uh, rhetoric of when applied to the internet is they, you know, they talk about the internet as a place where, you know, you can order sex, you can order a girl, um, like you're ordering a pizza. And I think it's the pizza part. That's the most offensive them Right. It's like, you don't have to like get in your car and go somewhere. You don't have to risk being recognized by somebody. You don't have to go to the other part of town. You can sit in your own house, which ostensibly is also shared by your own family uh, the, the danger, I think, that is seen here by, by people who, who see this as, as something that uh, that needs to be stopped is the idea that, you know, parts of the sex industry are sort of like hanging out with you in your living room. And you, you've been told that, like, this nice house is sort of your bulwark against that kind of thing. Um, and that kind of thing isn't necessarily sex. Like, because of that image of who the prostitute is, the sort of woman alone at night, uh, who's desperate – I think a lot of it also has to do with social proximity to poverty. Uh, Samuel Delaney who I owe a huge debt to in that passage uh, his book Times Square Red Times Square Blue is a major influence on my thinking about Times Square as a space that isn't really a red light district but that is this space as he calls it of, of contact of cross class contact of people who are of different social backgrounds but particularly different economic classes are going to collide not just because it's the crossroads of New York City where like every train station is there I mean that's a huge part of it but then also sort of like what comes up around that. Like it's an infrastructure that's very well suited to different kinds of people coming into contact with one another. And the internet isn't that different. Um, But the problem with the Internet is it's, you know, not physical space that is bounded in the way that the blocks between, you know, 6th Avenue Broadway or 8th Avenue and 42nd and 45th or maybe up to 46th. But now if you go, actually, when we first met, I remember talking that we were in Times Square
0: after (laughs) after the big Occupy protest.
1: Yeah, like October 2011, and I remember on the way home from that night, um, you know, swing because I often am not in Times Square, even though I live in New York. It's not a place the people who live here often go. But I decided to swing uh, by Ninth Avenue, and so that's where some of the peep shows have been have been pushed. So, you know, yes, the, in physical space, you could be like the street is the dividing line, but the internet doesn't work that way, and so then you get something that paints with this wildly broad brush. And in a way, that that wildly broad brush might be its its undo, undoing when it comes to the Constitution.
0: You write, ironically, that the this, this segregation of sex work after the red light district means that people are more likely to only meet sex workers on the job rather than going about the ordinary stuff of daily life, and that as a result, they're more likely than ever before to learn everything they know about sex work from marketing copy written for sex workers' customers. In the age of the online red light district, everyone's been made a John. And it's sort of this wry, mischievous uh, current running through the entire book, I think, that's suggesting that there's sort of a—that that prohibitionist, anti-sex worker activists— that they share a sort of purian interest in sex workers that's not so different from from that of clients, though, though far more damaging, of course.
1: I, I like to marshal Chris Hedges for my purposes here, um, not least of which because Chris Hedges has a virulent anti-sex work strain to his politics, um, whether it's going to the Adult Video News Awards uh, in Vegas oh my and God. You know, detailing his interactions with porn performers who were there working, selling autographs and <laughs> photos. Um, Or his more recent forays on his uh, own website, you know, boosting the arguments of not just anti-sex work feminists, but also anti-trans feminists, um, pushing these arguments out that sex workers can't speak for themselves and also that trans women are illegitimate um, arguments that often come together. Chris Hedges, what's his famous contribution? War is a force that gives us meaning an anti-sex work politics is a way to sort of give your feminism meaning, uh, when you feel like it's stalled out and everything else is work. Like if you, if you've already leaned in, if you already can have an abortion, you know, whether or not, even if it's criminal, right, you probably have the money to afford it. Um, if you're otherwise doing fine, sort of like, what do you marshal your feminism towards? And you have to find another, um, Elizabeth Bernstein, she's a, a sociologist at Barnard, has done some really interesting ethnographic work on these young Christians who go on um, what's known as like voluntourism trips, right, where they're like, you know, essentially tourists, but it's wrapped in the veneer of I'm volunteering to help people who are less fortunate than I am, who these uh, regularly, these trips take them through brothels and other um, red light districts in Southeast Asia. And Rather than sort of like, say, like, these are kids who are coming in to moralize, because it's not that simple. Um, You know, she takes them at face value. And the way that she understands what they're engaged in there is is an engagement with sexuality. It's just an engagement with sexuality, where they're sort of wrapped in this safe bubble of, I'm a young, social justice-minded missionary. Um, Because they don't like thinking of themselves, by the way, in that sort of old-school morality way. Like, they think of themselves as human rights defenders, as good Christians who, as part of their beliefs are going out in the world to like make the world a better place and advance human rights. It just so happens that that mantle protects them when they're in a brothel, right? Like this is a way they can go into brothels. This is a way that, you know, for anti-sex work campaigners, they can spend a lot of time on websites um, where sex is sold and sex work is discussed. In the UK right now, they're considering adopting a version of of SESTA-FOSTA and there was a parliamentary debate about it in the last few days and one of the things uh, that happened at that debate is that um, reviews that, that clients wrote of sex workers were read aloud, Wow. Um, like into the record. Yes. So if you want to say like, you know, everyone is a John now. Here's the other thing to note about those those reviews is. They're one, not necessarily things that even happened. Um, a lot of the time, these are just sort of like creative stories about what somebody who can't even uh, you know, hire a sex worker might want to do with them. or It's a form of like
0: pop erotica.
1: Yeah. You know, it's like distributed penthouse letters. Anyone can post one. And in some of the sites, you actually get access to other parts of the site, including uncensored reviews, if you post a review yourself. So the entire system is sort of like designed to, to honor fictitious reviews. The more salacious, the better. Um, at any rate, it, it's uh, it's quite telling. And, and Sex Worker Activists pointed this out uh, in the moment. Um, watching this debate unfold, that the voices of sex workers that, you know, were heard in this debate were the ones filtered through what clients who engaged them at work thought about them, that that's what was present, not sex workers themselves who were actually protesting several to several hundred of them outside parliament at that same moment.
0: Which is not so surprising, given that is the hidden but literal perspective of so many politicians who so moralistically crusade against sex work.
1: I find it so, I don't know. I feel like we've spent a long time in the last, I don't know, at least my entire life, uh, folks sort of loosely on the left, like talking about what's going around the the legislation of sexuality, whether that's, you know, same-sex sex or whether that's, you know, porn, whether that's sex work, as being something about like legislating morality. And I really don't think that that's what it is. I think it has more to do with legislating difference. Huh. Uh, and and so i I try to like think out of that paradigm as much as I can because it 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 can take us also to some places that I feel like are not are quite at odds with a human rights framework. So you know you get into the situation where you're sort of like waiting for the next conservative politician to get caught having sex with a man to sort of be his undoing, which like p s we know isn't. Um, so it, it's a very, or like, for example, this idea that like, all we have to do is get evidence that this politician hired a sex worker and then we'll know his anti-sex work politics are hypocritical. Have you looked in the white house recently?
0: Yeah, it doesn't work. The gotcha doesn't work if it ever did. Yeah. No,
1: it doesn't. And, and, and in a way it's, it's fascinating to watch a figure like Stormy Daniels sort of, you know, take up this space as a really famous sex worker right now. Who is engaged explicitly in political self-defense um, to to try to to protect herself from the harassment that she says she's experienced from this administration? Um, it's and a threat. And, and yeah, I mean, she. We could be having this conversation again in two years, and like Stormy knew exactly where all the bodies were buried, metaphorically speaking, as far as we know. You know, <laughs> like it's, it is entirely possible that, and and certainly in sort of like the resistance fan version of a fanfic version of Stormy Daniels, you know, she's like the porn star who took down the president. I I don't know. Um, I don't know that she even needs to do all of that. But I I think that um, getting out of this sort of idea of like proving that they're hypocrites will help us undo the damage of what they do. It's, uh, it doesn't work. Um, I think the far more important thing to do, and this is certainly what animates my journalism, is to talk about the impact of what these people do on people's lives. And and that's something that in SESTA Fosta, as we've been talking about, has been so immediately obvious to see the erasure of sex workers from the internet, which you know also handily accomplishes what some of its supporters wanted, which is to just not have to listen to sex workers. It's really easy to do that when the platforms are removing them for you.
0: What do you make of the public reception and debate over Stormy Daniels? Obviously she is a hero to many liberal resistance types who might normally not celebrate sex workers. Uh but there's also this this notion that her status as a sex worker, I think it came up in her 60 minutes interview that it, that it that it makes her suspect in the sense that she had these greedy transactional motives for coming forward, that she was just using this all to make money.
1: Yeah, It's wild because I think she said this herself. It's like she could go make that money, you know, the money that she was offered to hush up. Um, She already has a platform. You know, in a way like that, that's not what this is about.
0: She's already Um, a big deal in the porn world.
1: She's already a huge deal. She's already a feature dancer. And she also is in a position right now where, um, how do you not capitalize on that, right? like this 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 person who has run his entire political project um, on attention and and people not being able to turn away from him in a way, like attention can also be a form of self-protection. And that's that's how I understand what Stormy is doing. It's like all eyes on me. like I don't want anything to happen to me. Um uh, like this is what's going on, and I'm going to command my own story. And you know, this is also her livelihood. Like she can't, Tell all those reporters not to keep coming to her shows to keep filing pieces about what it is to go hang out with a stripper or a porn star. I think those pieces have
0: walking up to another reporter and being like, "Uh, "Are you here for Stormy Daniels?" And they're like, "I'm a reporter too."
1: Yeah, it's like, oh god, the entire audience is just filing coffee in an hour. This is so (laughs) great. Talk about everyone Um, having
0: the John's perspective. It's
1: (laughs) great. No, it's wild. Uh, It's. I, I think like we we've accelerated through in the case of Stormy Daniels, like all of these narratives about who a sex worker is in public um, and the forcefulness of, of her presence that, you know, the fact that she's still very public um, and even was able to command something like 60 minutes towards her. I know some people thought that the show was very unfair to her and some of the questions that they asked. And, you know, it's it's tough. Like, I think, there, I, I was very glad that Anderson Cooper was the one who scored that interview. I feel like he did a, a really good job of sort of breaking down, like, weird rich dude sexuality um, for the general public and sort yeah. of, like, giving her a way of talking about that, that, you know, checked those boxes but also, like, didn't dwell on them in a way as if it was exceptional. Like, I just felt like the whole part about, like, their... You know, behind closed doors encounters was treated as like no more interesting than an eye roll, and then like yeah, moving like on, of course,
0: it, of course, rich white dudes want to be spanked with their own photograph. I mean, right? Like, what else course. would they be into? <laughs> yeah,
1: like that's no surprise to anybody. Like, of course, moving on. Um, and and now let's talk about how you were threatened into silence. And now let's talk about you know these lawyers who are continuing to threaten people. Um, it's it's very. She just I don't know like. I am also resistant to this idea of like, um, and you even hear this from some sex worker rights activists of like, well, we have to find sort of like the right model sex worker that if like we have somebody who sort of dispels stereotypes and myths, then like our campaign for social acceptance will succeed. Um, and there's a grain of truth to that. I mean, it's certainly other movements have, have used that to their advantage, um, but it also reveals all the points where those movements haven't fully um, taken root in a in a real way, and then the vulnerabilities in those movements. You know that has everything to do with why trans people are so vulnerable, despite this moment of supposed LGBT inclusion and acceptance that we are living in. Um, you know that that isn't the case. It's not equally distributed throughout that community, and the same for for women's health and women's rights. When you, we you know think about um, how fragile access to reproductive health and abortion, in particular, is right now, like. When we think about these things mostly as like, um, you know, the right way to have an abortion or the right way to be gay, not that those are analogous, but I feel like the politics of them are very analogous and the sort of judgments that we make around them. Um, you could sort of see somebody also being like, well, here's like the right way to be a sex worker. Like, you have to have like a lot of money and like look like you always like it and have a good time. And, you know, one of the things I'm really hardened by and um, sort of sex workers' own critiques of this. Uh, Is this idea that, you know, you can be sort of like, don't really care about how great sex work is or how bad it is, like you still are entitled to rights. It's not something that we like push on other workers, like to prove what a good time you're having. Um, Generally speaking, the reason that workers seek rights is because work isn't great. Right? For most people. Um, and and so I'm, I'm really excited about this book that's going to be coming out soon. People should go pre-order it. Um, Versa is also publishing it. It's called Revolting Prostitutes. And it's by Juno Mack and Molly Smith, who are two sex workers in the UK. Um, UK sex work politics are super interesting just because they're playing out in the context of a left that's sort of winning. Um, though I, maybe we can start to say that about the U.S., I, I don't know. There's bubbles of, of left sort of visibility. Uh, there's also been some really interesting sex worker activism, like within the labor party, um, and Jeremy Corbyn and also, um, John McDonald, uh, have, have said that they support the decriminalization of sex work, though it's certainly not uniform. Like the, the people who are bringing this SESTA-FOSTA like legislation to the UK right now, um, are, are both labor party members themselves. Uh, so it's, it's complicated, but, uh, i I think that like when you have sort of a popular consciousness that you know is is has more room for um, left politics around labor, sex work politics looks really different. um, uh, labor with you know, the you, the work part of labor, not like the party labor. like the the idea that like you know there is this thing called a worker and there are politics around work. Um you know, in the u s, sex work politics are sort of shunted off into the realm mostly just to feminism and, and feminism is a space there. Um, It's certainly opening up more to sort of, you know, more socialist feminist analysis of work. Um, You certainly see that in some of the responses to Charles Sandberg and Lean In and also to Me Too. Um, But it's the conversation, even though we're both, you know, nominally English speaking countries, it plays out really differently in the U S than it does in the UK. So I'm really psyched for their book and I hope it it makes waves in the U S as well. Revolting Prostitutes. It's coming out from Verso uh, later this year.
0: So I I regret to inform you that my last question is about Pizzagate and QAnon.
1: (laughs) That's good. It's best not to end on a commercial.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That was a great, like, uh, you know, enthusiastic, positive thing to end on. But uh, I'm not done yet. My last question is about Pizzagate. Um, Why, Melissa, has the conspiracist far right's most dominant narrative turned out to be that the powers that be, what they've been doing all along, their dirty secret underlying the nasty world order, is that these elites are trafficking children for sex and that Trump is finally going to put a stop to it. Why is this the thing?
1: It reminds me of the satanic panic from the 80s, right? This idea that child care centers are actually hotbeds of ritual satanic sexual abuse, um, even though that didn't actually happen. Um, it was like a... a of an idea that, that took hold, I think, to explain other things that were actually happening in the world. And, you know, Debbie Nathan is really the go-to on this moment. And I think it's instructive for this one. What was going on in the world in that moment is that you have more women putting their kids in childcare to go to work. You have more and more childcare centers staffed by more and more recent immigrants, mostly uh, brown folks coming over from Mexico, from Central America. And then you also have Actual childhood sexual abuse being talked about um, in a national way, but that sexual abuse is mostly about families and things happening amongst people who know each other. Um, All of this collides into this thing that happens all the time, you know, of scapegoating somebody for a real thing that's happening who isn't actually responsible. And that scapegoat is actually doing a lot of political work. Um, So you get to demonize immigrant women. You get to demonize women from American women who are sending their kids to childcare who are going to work. And then you also get to sort of shove the realities of childhood sexual abuse back into the closet and project it all onto like literal Satanists that you say are molesting children it fits very nicely into their anti-Semitism. Like a lot of what's going on with Pizzagate is just straight up like anti-Semitism of the type that you see in other right-wing conspiracy theories about like the New World Order, or globalists or all these kinds of code words um, that are anti-Semitic. Um, I think a lot of it also is is being driven by every statement that comes out of Trump's mouth about MS-13, about gangs and the border, about immigration. And there's this collapsing of... Um, Anybody who's entering the United States with a potential trafficker, um, describing people who are immigrating with their families to the U.S. as people who are smuggling their own children or trafficking children or raising doubts that there might be like trafficked children amongst those people, um, it it's doing that work that the satanic panic did, tailored to our political moment. And the difference is the person at the top of it. Um, whether or not he believes it, whether or not he even knows that this is what's happening, is feeding the beast. It's got a path to the mainstream of the right wing that's very well prepared. You know, if you if you believe that there are already elite rings of people out there trafficking children and selling them for sex happening all around us, which by the way is pretty much the mainstream anti-trafficking movement rhetoric, maybe minus the word elite. That's sort of where the Pizzagate spin comes on. Um, it's it's just ready made for this moment. It's hard for
0: me to believe that this moment happens without very mainstream priming of the public to think that sex trafficking is, is so pervasive.
1: I guarantee you that that is not what any of those anti-trafficking groups thought they were going to be looking at after (laughs) 10 years into their movement. Um, and I'm sure there are some well intentioned people who crafted these messages and there's, Certainly more and more people in the anti-trafficking movement were very skeptical of you know this kind of framing and you're seeing pushback. But the reality is it is never condemned <laughs> when it when it, it manifests in this way. I haven't seen many of these anti-trafficking groups, for example, get very involved in the issue of family separation at the border. Um I haven't seen many of them talking about what's going on with children in these detention centers. And these apparatuses are very closely linked. Like I know on the one hand, someone might say, well, they're dealing with trafficking and that's immigration. Um, But the reality is like anti-trafficking groups are working with ICE and Customs and Border Patrol and Department of Homeland Security and what they're doing. They're also working with shelters and emergency housing for victims of violence, some of the same places that children might end up being sent as a result of this program. Like they're inside this apparatus in a way. Um, and, And I think that's the problem that they've institutionalized themselves inside the same apparatus that's doing this harm.
0: Well, to riff off Sarah Jaffe, good morning to everyone except for carceral feminists.
1: <laughs> Basically. I I hope to come back and we'll talk more about carceral feminism another time, but I think that's a, a great way to end it.
0: Melissa Jerry Grant, thank you very much for coming back on.
1: Thanks for having me, as always.
0: Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the general position of women in modern society is inhuman, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. Please, make propaganda for us. And last, but by no means least, do find us on patreon.com slash thedig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help.